all things land development, planning and property. This is Property on Fire with Ian Walmsley. To find out how Ian can help you, visit propertyonfire.co.uk. Hello and welcome to this week's festive episode of Property on Fire. So what do we have coming up on today's episode? As usual, several have been emailing in your questions to Ian at propertyonfire.co.uk and despite being a run-up to Christmas, this episode is no exception. In this Christmas special, we have questions about bedsits and a question about how to measure the height of an extension on a slope. And I'll have a quick rant about EPCs. We also have a question that Darren Dow is answering for me on development finance and I will look at Article 2 land in Ian's A to Z of property. So this week we have a complete Christmas buffet of property. Although I'm not actually sure whether we're actually allowed a Christmas buffet this year. But hey ho. So without further ado, let's get started. But before we do, please do like, review and subscribe to this podcast. And come with me on this property journey. So at the time of release of this episode, we are just a few days away from Christmas. Or perhaps you're listening to this after Christmas in 2021. And if that's the case, I then hope you had a very good Christmas. Mind you, I think we'll all need a July Christmas party to look forward to. Perhaps I'll have to organise a property summer Christmas party. I do realise that many of you are going to be spending Christmas in some sort of lockdown situation with a new Tier 4 level now in place for large chunks of the country. If you're alone this Christmas, please do feel free to reach out to others. We are only a phone call away or perhaps a Zoom call away these days. Now, as this is a Christmas episode, I am recording this in my tinsel festoon studio with a nice little robin sitting outside on the windowsill singing. Okay, part of that wasn't quite true, but what is true is that both I and my editing team, headed by Pete, wish you all a very Merry Christmas and a wonderful New Year that's hopefully slightly better for us all than 2020. Mind you, I'm not sure that is too hard. If you're finding yourself at a loose end over the next few days, why not let me know about your highs or the reflections that you had from 2020? You can tweet me at Property on Fire or as usual, send me an email to ian at propertyonfire.co.uk. I would love to know how your 2020 ended up and perhaps I might talk about a few on a future episode. Before we jump into our first question, a couple of key date reminders for you. And they're all around the end of March or the beginning of April of 2021. On the 31st of March 21, the stamp duty holiday ends. Now, you must have completed the purchase of a property by the 31st of March. So therefore, if you complete on the 1st of April or later, you will not benefit from the stamp duty holiday. The government this week ruled out extending the stamp duty holiday before the 31st of March. However, Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has also announced that the next budget would be on the 3rd of March 21. So maybe we'll get an announcement then about an extension. It's not like this government has ever made a U-turn before. Hmm. Now, the furlough scheme has also been extended for another month to the end of April, with the government paying 80% of salary for employees. But once again, I don't see too much there for the self-employed people that are the backbone of this nation of ours. Now, the stamp duty holiday has seen the starting threshold of the Residential Stamp Duty Land Tax, or SDLT for short, increase from 125000 
to half a million pounds. And that's been running from the 8th of July 2020 until, as I mentioned earlier, 31st of March 21. Some 26,000 people have signed a petition asking Rishi Sunak to extend it, but we'll have to wait and see. And if you'd like to sign that petition, then I've put a link to it in today's show notes. Now, also on the 1st of April 21, the new Help to Buy scheme kicks in until March 23. However, this is now restricted to first-time buyers only. Now, if you're buying a property under the current Help to Buy scheme, you must complete your purchase by the 31st of March 21. And if that property is still being built, then it must be signed off by the warranty provider by the 28th of February 21. One final date that you ought to be aware of is on the 6th of April 21 is when the minimum space standards will kick in for new dwellings created under permitted development. I spoke about this in episode 2 so please feel free to listen to it again if needed and find out how you might be impacted by the change of rules on the 6th of April 2021. You can of course listen to the previous episodes of this podcast in your favourite app or by going to propertyonfire.co.uk Okay, on to our first question that has been emailed to Ian at Property on Fire and it reads as follows Ian, I enjoyed your podcast last week and well done on getting this going I own a large four-storey property that currently has planning for seven bedsits since 1981. It's configured with two kitchens and four bathrooms. The property is in an Article 4 area and a conservation area within Suffolk. I have a number of options now with the intention to upgrade and self-contain the units. My options are A. Continue as it is. B. Get an HMO license and refurbish as a seven bed HMO which is quite easy. And C configure as seven self-contained units get building control sign off so i can refinance in the future four of the units would comply with studio size and two wooden as they will be 32 square meters i wondered if you had seen a situation where historic bedsits could be migrated to self-contained units without having to go through planning I could just self-contain the units and operate within the HMO license with just having a landing toilet being the shared bits. Right, first of all, thank you very much for your question. It is most appreciated. Now, what you actually have here is an HMO and a sui generis HMO as it is for seven people. So I think you've got to forget A in your question as to be quite honest you shouldn't continue as it is and the reason for that is on the 1st October 2018 mandatory licensing came into play for all properties with five occupants where two or more are unrelated therefore you are going to need to adopt option B as soon as possible as I'm afraid your property does actually require a license now as for converting to self-contained units which is your option C. I'm afraid this is actually going to need full planning. Now what we often do find is that people will add in kitchenettes and en-suites and all of a sudden they actually find they've created self-contained units within their HMO, which of course is a breach of planning and could be subject to enforcement, as indeed having no license could. 
My advice to you is to get the property license as soon as possible. Then perhaps look at converting to residential C3. But you will be subject to the National Minimum Space Standards, which, as I'm sure you're aware, is 37 square metres for a one-bed, one-person studio. Now, I suspect this is not the case, but if these bedsits had been operating as self-contained units for at least four years, then perhaps you could opt for a lawful development certificate. But you would need to evidence this in any application. Just in case this does apply to you, I've put a link to the lawful development certificates within my Planning Geek website within the show notes. Thank you very much for your question on your HMO or your bed sits. And thank you also for your very kind words about the podcast and how much you actually enjoyed it. And yes, I did get it going in the end. But uh, as I said in one of my first episodes, I have a degree in procrastination, but no more. And yes, I'm actually quite enjoying these, to be honest. But I hope the answer to your question wasn't too disappointing. But I'm always going to be factual in my answers that I always give within the podcast. And this is no exception. But really, you you ought to really get your property licensed as soon as possible. Right, a quick update on our sites within Leading Homes. On our 22-flat conversion of an old office block in South Devon, we managed this week to refinance this from a Paragon Development finance product to a Seabills product that has been issued and supported by the government. This has taken a lot of pressure off of our shoulders because as our site was delayed thanks to COVID, It has meant that we have got to the end of or had got to the end of our Paragon loan, which, as you may be aware, when when you get to the end, the interest rates and the fees start to mount up very rapidly. Although we are still trying to get the builders to actually finish on site, and I'm hoping now by the end of January, they ought to have gone and we'll actually finally have the site back under our control once again. But yesterday we accepted another offer on one of our larger flats. So people are seeing the finished product at last. Externally, we are currently having the landscape done and this will transform the outside areas, create communal gardens and private gardens for some of the flats. As it was permitted development, there is no planting requirements or indeed any requirement to create outside space. But this is vital to a nice community and therefore we're creating a nice environment for people to live and indeed relax in. All the flats are going to have up to a gigabit in internet speeds with fibre all the way to each flat. So I'm hoping that they will all have a good live stroke work environment. Now on one of our other sites, which is a purchase of some land in North Devon for 14 bungalows, you may recall from a previous episode of Property on Fire that our funder who was putting in 1.2 million at 15% per annum was very ill unfortunately with COVID-19 and regretfully that is still the case. However, we are now hoping to be able to complete this week thanks to a couple of other investors who seem to like 15 to 2% per calendar month interest on a straight loan. And why not? As usual, if you fancy investing in any of our schemes, then please do get in touch. 
Hopefully I'll have more news on this site during the next episode of Property on Fire. This is Property on Fire with Ian Walmsley. And now, Ian's rant. Right, this week's rant is one that I've personally experienced this month, but it's also been told to me by Paul James on the Facebook group All About Property. Paul writes, and I quote, EPC and electric heating. Guidance for inspectors says go back to the 1970s and use storage heaters as the government thinks it's cheaper, but that is so not true. New heaters are so much better to control and are super energy efficient, while storage heaters are totally inefficient and use more CO2 to heat, which goes totally against the reason for having EPC ratings. The government needs to get up to date and change this old-fashioned and wrong direction to EPC's assessors. Thanks Paul for that rant and to be honest I could have written that myself because having just had 22 EPCs done I know exactly what you mean. We have brand new flats and the best we could get is a C. All these flats are super efficient and have some great insulation on all four walls, floor and ceiling. Yet, because we do not use gas, we are penalised. Gas is on its way out and so should the current method for rating dwellings. Like Paul, the advice given to us was to install storage heaters. No thank you, government. No thank you. I mean, this is crazy. Especially if people compare a brand new flat with, say, a slightly older flat, but with gas in it and less efficiency. So the older flat could have perhaps an A or a B or even a C. Yet the new flat could have a D or even an E thanks to the fact it has electric only. Absolutely crazy and well worth this week's rant. Right. That's annoying me. Right. Okay. If you have a rant, then why not tweet me at Property on Fire? or email me at ianpropertyonfire.co.uk and get it off your chest. Our second question was tweeted to at Property on Fire from Cathy Crabtree. Now she's building a single storey extension under permitted development, but her rear garden is on a slope. She's asking, how do I measure the height of it? From which point do I measure? Thanks, Cathy, for your question. Now, this is actually answered in the technical guidance that is issued by the government, and that reads, Height. References to height, for example, the height of the eaves on a house extension, is measured from the ground level. Note, ground level is the surface of the ground immediately adjacent to the building in question and would not include any additional laid on top of the ground, such as decking. Where ground level is not uniform, for example if the ground is sloping, then the ground level is the highest part of the surface of the ground next to the building. Now, Cathy, I'm not sure which way your land slopes, but if it differs in height close to the main house, then you take the highest point on that land and measure the maximum height from there. If you're building your extension under permitted development, then you'll need to comply with Class A of Part 1 of the GPDO. Now this gives you a maximum height of 4 metres on a single storey, or if you're within 2 metres of a boundary, then the maximum height is actually three meters, but that's still pretty high, even close to the boundary of your property. 
Now, those heights are a maximum as long as you do not go above the ridge line of your house. Now, the depth, by the way, is either three meters for a terraced or semi-detached or four meters for a detached property. If you want to use the larger rear extensions and do a neighborhood consultation via the local authority, then you can go out to eight meters on a detached property or six meters on a semi or a terrace property. Just remember that all extensions and outbuildings, including sheds, etc., are limited to 50% of the curtilage around the property. So this limit might actually constrain the maximum depth that you can actually go to. We have a similar situation on our site in South Devon, where the land at the front is probably about a meter or three feet above the road level. As you may be aware, that on the front elevation, you can erect a fence up to one meter under permitted development. If your land is already one meter higher than the, the road outside, then your fence height can actually be two meters in this case. I hope that makes sense. So you always measure from the highest point of the land closest to the point of where you're actually starting the permitted development work. And that is true whether it's a fence or whether it's an extension. So that's an excellent question, Cathy. And thanks very much for tweeting that to me at Property on Fire. I hope that helped you, Cathy. And you can find a link to the technical guidance in the show notes as well as a link to the Planning Geek page on extensions. Now this week we actually have three questions as it's Christmas and we're feeling generous. Keith Vince, who has asked about development finance, whilst I've borrowed over five million in development finance, I'm not a broker and therefore I'm not in direct contact with lenders on this. I'm the developer who expects a broker to find me very good rates. So who better to answer that question from Keith than our resident broker, Darren Dow from Acumen Finance. Welcome, Darren, and a very Merry Christmas to you and your family. Hello, everyone, and thanks, Ian, for that introduction. I hope everyone is safe and sound. I'm looking forward to spending some time with the family at Christmas. I've been asked by Ian to provide the first in what will become a regular feature of the podcast, answering questions relating to the wonderful world of property finance. This week's question comes from Keith Vince. Keith Vince is wondering what is the single most important factor that lenders look for when considering lending on development finance. So I think it's important that we start by determining exactly what development financing is. With development finance it tends to be a parcel of land that's purchased with the intention of building new properties on that land. The most important thing and it might come as a bit of a surprise to a lot of people that lenders look for is actually the experience of the developer. Now what I mean by that is they want to see a logical progression in a developer's career path. So what most lenders are looking for is someone who started out doing perhaps minor renovations, you know, finding a rundown property, restoring it to its former glory and then selling it on. They then want to be able to, be able to see your projects progressively getting bigger and bigger from there as you take on more responsibility. Lenders will want to know what your direct involvement in the project was and what you did on a day-to-day basis. They will obviously also want to know the facts and figures. They want to know how much you bought the land for, how much the development costs. They want to know what the return on the project was when everything was completed as well. I encourage every new and aspiring developer 
to do is to create something called a developer CV and maintain it from your very first project. I would say that 90% of the battle of getting development finance is convincing lenders that you have the required experience to carry out this project from start to finish. Now this doesn't mean that if you've got loads of experience but every single one of your projects was a failure that you'll find lenders just willing to throw money at you. It's a complete opposite to that. They need to be able to see that at least 90% of your projects you know, were completed successfully. This, again, if you have projects that weren't completed successfully, it doesn't necessarily mean that lenders won't lend to you. They'll just want to know what the logical reasoning behind why these projects never made a return on investment. That could be a whole host of things. And I have developers who are clients that not every project was successful. As long as you're open and honest and willing to tell the the lenders why that was, they'll still consider you for development finance. What I quite often get is someone looking for bridging finance when in fact what they want is development finance. So it may be quite helpful to explain the differences between the two. Bridging finance tends to come in two different categories. You've got light refurbishment and heavy refurbishment. Now the difference between those two is heavy refurbishment tends to involve anything that would have a structural change, whereas light refurbishment is more for your, you know, I don't know, perhaps paint, carpet, and then putting the property back on the market, that type of thing. Where bridging and development finance differs is, in order to get bridging finance, there has to be a physical asset that the lender can use for security. Whereas with development financing, minus maybe the land, there is no other physical asset that the lender can use for security for the loan. So that tends to be the difference between the two. If you're looking to purchase some form of land and then build completely new buildings on that land, this tends to fall in the development finance category. Well, I hope that's been helpful to everyone. I just want to take this opportunity to wish all the listeners a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And think about this, even if we do go into lockdown in January, at least that means you can put your New Year's resolution off until at least February, which is a definite positive in my book. Ian, I would also like to take this opportunity to wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And I look forward to delivering the first big update in January. This is Property on Fire with Ian Walmsley. And now, Ian's A to Z of property. Right, well, we're still going through the letter A within my A to Z of property. It would seem that the majority of things are actually contained within A. So I think it's going to be another few weeks before we can move on to B. Anyway, back to the letter A. And this week, we're talking about Article 2 land. Now, Article 2 land is land that has some sort of protection against permitted development rights. And this is now broken down into two subcategories, Article 2.3 land and Article 2.4 land. Now, Article 2.3 land is probably the most common restricted areas, and these include conservation areas, areas of outstanding natural beauty, or AONBs, the Norfolk and Suffolk Broads, National Park and World Heritage Sites. And quite often you will see within the GPDO where it simply says not permitted on Article 2.3 land. So that is what that actually means. Article 2.4 land contains national parks, the Norfolk and Suffolk Broads and several areas just outside national parks in the local authority areas of Allerdale, Copeland, Eden, High Peak, South Lakeland and West Derbyshire. So if you hear planners saying that something is blocked on Article 2.3 land, you now know what they mean, namely conservation areas, AOMBs, Norfolk and Suffolk Broads, 
national parks and world heritage sites. I hope that you've enjoyed today's episode. A massive thank you to all those who have asked questions this week, including Kathy and Keith. And thank you also to Darren, as usual, for answering one of those questions. And also a big thanks to Paul James for his rant of this week. So finally, I would like to wish each and every one of you a very happy Christmas from myself, Pete, my editor, and Darren. And I will see you all just before the end of the year in the next episode of Property on Fire. And remember, if I can help you in your journey, then please do get in touch. Property on Fire with Ian Walmsley. Please use your podcast app to rate, review and subscribe to the show. And if you'd like a question answered on a future episode, email ian at propertyonfire.co.uk.